Welcome back to another episode of Church Hurts, and it's the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and faith today, with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you're like most of us and you have questions about the church, maybe you become a bit jaded in your attitudes towards religion in general, then you've come to the right place. Our host, well, he was an honors philosophy major. He ordained a Presbyterian minister and planted three churches along the way. He also taught at a prestigious university and was a teaching pastor at a megachurch. He was an executive coach even, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon like all of us. Who never quits asking the one question that never seems to get answered by anybody today. Why? Why not bring him in? Dr. John Bash, welcome, sir. Paul, it is hard to describe the tension in the air and in the spirits of Americans at the time of this broadcast. After three months, we were tiring of the shutdown caused by the virus called Corona perhaps even more tired, the endless pundits discussing reopening the country when the air got sucked out of the room by the senseless murder of George Floyd on May 25th. And then the protests turned to riots and the pundits kept going and going. And I'm tired even describing it. It's been painful. I really had to focus to keep myself from losing my serenity during this time. How easy it would be to get wound up over big issues over which I have no control. People I talk to have a lot of opinions about the virus, about race, about authorities and biases. Virtue signaling has taken over Facebook, family groups, and almost all public discourse. I'm tired. But it got me thinking, what would it be like if this stress didn't go away? What would it be like to live daily under conditions where events outside of your control might impose at any moment in dramatic ways? As I often do, I went to the Bible, and soon I was thinking about that land where so much of the Bible is played out. In my lifetime, I can't think of a place more synonymous with conflict and stress and charges of bigotry and bias and international virtue signaling than the Middle East. One might even think that powder keg is defined as the number one adjective for Middle East. So let's calm things down if you're following my clear train of thought so far. Virus, shutdown, pundits, George Floyd, Middle East. Oh, now let's add church into the equation. If you grew up in a church, you probably heard some teaching about Israel and some attempt to apply that to the modern day. And some churches are just, go, go, Israel. The Jews are God's people, and we need to stand behind them no matter what. God said so. It's in the Bible. Other churches find the connection between modern Israel and ancient Israel a stretch at best and have far more empathy for the causes of the Palestinians. But know this, no matter what you heard emphasized, it probably didn't come with a lot of flexibility towards the other viewpoint. So let's get even more personal. If you came from a church family, what were you told about Jews growing up? 
And then, of course, we're keeping this calm in this church hurts and discussion. And then in the news, in the very back pages, at the very bottom was an announcement, which you may have overlooked, Paul, the Joshua Fund hired a new executive director. And I bet you didn't see that. Well, you may not know that guy or the Joshua Fund, and we're going to correct that right now. Welcome, Dr. Carl Moeller to Church Hurts and. Well, it's great to be with you, John. Dr. John Bash, a pleasure, as always. Well, Carl, what we're going to talk about is so heavy um, that I'm going to stop us already. I mean, that kind of intensity, I'm even more tired. And so since this is OC Talk Radio, which is Orange County, California, and you for many years were the pastor, one of the pastors at our largest church, Saddleback, tell our listeners what you did when one time it was announced to the entire congregation on a weekend, if they wanted to know more about the subject, they were to come to the group you were in charge of. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, uh, it was one of those moments. I, I realized when I was hired, um, I had been married to the same woman the whole time. I had been, uh, we had four kids, and I was completely out of my depth when Rick said, uh, single adults, if you want to know about sex and relationships, come to the singles meeting that uh, we're holding on Wednesday night. And I'm the brand new pastor. So I did the first thing any rational human being would do. I punted to Dr. John Bash, who <laughs> had uh, many, many more uh, years experience in this kind of realm than I did. I was brand new to the, to the table and uh, you showed up and uh, you sure showed up and helped me a lot. So always grateful for that, John. Well, Carl, that that was a fun night. We kind of did that together. I really tried to set you up. And you were squirming. I remember you were squirming. Um, because what we did was just say, if you have questions, put them in a plate, and we're going to start answering them. And some of those questions were really funny. But yeah, we're going to go, you know, that's a serious question, but one that has a little bit more... Uh, little sexier than what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Let's get back to our subject today, Jews, conflict, and culture. And I really, Carl, wanted to say congratulations on your new position with the Joshua Fund. But do permit me to make an observation. For such a nice, conservative guy like you, you have a way of taking cutting-edge jobs that have more controversy at the edges or in the middle you got to give me a story. What drives you? What makes your blood pump? Why do you do this? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think for me, the, the blood pumping comes from really wanting to be in a place where I can be a voice for the voiceless. You know, whether it's singles in Orange County or if it's persecuted Christians in, in uh, Egypt or in uh, China, or if it's uh, people translating the Bible in the, in the mountains of uh, South America. People who are voiceless need a voice. I, I, I look at it this way. There was a time, uh, not a few years ago, uh, when I was uh, brand new to working with persecuted Christians. And I went down to Colombia at the request of some of our coworkers down there uh, for another organization I was serving as CEO of. Um, I went down there, and honestly, John, I, I'm, I was completely uh, out of my depth again. Um, you know, I went down to this place where the uh, left-wing FARC rebels 
had been killing people who weren't going to go work in their cocaine fields to traffic their guns and and ammunition and such. And one pastor we met with, who was one of our coworkers down there, uh, he had a, uh, a a parishioner who was shot because he refused to go work for the left wing uh, communist rebels in the mountains. And he was weeping over the loss of this this brother. And I was there. I was weeping. And honestly, I said to him, I said, Pastor, I, I don't know what I'm what I can do. All I can do is, is, is be here. And he looked at me and he said, you know, being here is a ministry. He goes, Carl, you have the ministry of a wet shoulder. We can cry on your shoulder. And, you know, for me, John, that's what that's what gets my heart pumping is that there are hundreds of millions of people around the world, Christians, who are following Jesus Christ in places where it's difficult, it's hard, uh, it's confusing, it's fraught with political and social uh, tensions. And that's really what gets my heart pumping, is when when someone cries on your shoulder, you're you're in the ministry of presence. And that's really what, what this is all about. Well, really, I mean, what words today, you know, when when we're seeing kind of a state of unrest in our country with some people so much screaming, please hear me, hear what we're saying. Don't give me the platitudes in response. I want to feel heard. And other people just scared going, yeah, but don't break into my business and don't let a protest turn into a riot. And we can get so microscopic into ourselves that we forget others in the world like you're talking about and well let's just go even more directly though to where you are now the mission of the joshua fund is to bless israel and her neighbors in the name of jesus according to genesis 12 1 to 3 now wait a minute already because that sounds like a mission statement but we have to stop Talk about controversial. The name here is Church Hurts. And, you know, I'm not sure the average person I know would be really thrilled with this mission statement. I think most Jewish people have a story to tell about how church hurts. I mean, talk to me. There there has to be something. What? Sure. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm literally brand new to the mission I'm so excited about it, though, because for the years that I have worked in the Middle East, um, the Joshua Fund has stood out as one of the one of the only groups, maybe the only group, uh, who really predicates uh, their mission not on one side of the dialogue or the other. But you're right. You know, I mean, this is this is a place where more blood has been shed for religious reasons than anywhere else in the world. It's not for any small reason that that our founder Joel Rosenberg calls this region the epicenter of world history. This is the epicenter. And you know what things things happen at the epicenter. And you know hit, there's so much history here between Christians and Jews. Um, there's so much history that is painful to both Jewish people and Christians in many ways. But in particular Jewish people have, have suffered so much over the centuries at the hands of Christians, as well as Muslims, obviously, and, and that's part of the dynamic now. I, I, I can tell you a story from uh, from my background. Uh, when I was here in Southern California leading another group, I worked with a rabbi uh, on interfaith dialogue. And uh, this rabbi uh, was uh, just, he now lives in Jerusalem. He was uh, 
a wonderful, beautiful Orthodox rabbi. He taught at Loyola Marymount University. So he says, I know you Christians really well. But uh, he invited my wife and I to his home in uh, West L.A. for a, uh, a Shabbat dinner, a, a Sabbath dinner. And, you know, of course, it was it was amazing. The food was unbelievable. But before we even got there, he brought his whole family to meet my wife and I as we came to the door. And he said, you, you do realize that this, this man's name is Dr. Moeller. He's German by background. Right. And, de- and, he, and tears were in his eyes. He said, do you realize that as Christians and Jews, in his experience, his family's experience, and in his, his people's experience, this could never have happened before if we were not willing to put all of those prejudices and, and hatreds aside. And uh, I'm telling you, it, it opened the door for an amazing dinner. Uh, we're still good friends today. And, and again, you know, it's that kind of orientation that we need to have that if we're ever going to bridge the divide between Arabs and Jews, Palestinians and Jews, or Christians and Jews, or Christians and Muslims and, and, and Arabs and Palestinians, for that matter, we're going to have to start with a different ethic. We're going to have to start with an ethic of forgiveness and love. And that's why the Joshua Fund talks about blessing Israel and her neighbors, the Arab countries around, in the name of Jesus. That's where we start. I mean that's just heavy. I mean, I mean let, let me though let me back let me back up even more though. You know, when you're saying that and we're starting right with a place which when you talk about people who don't believe in God or have been turned off by church, one of the first arguments they're going to use against theism, not against Christianity or Judaism, against about any group that believes there's a God, they're gonna say the in the name of religion there have been more wars the you know what why who could believe in a god like that and so i go back all the way to first or second grade i'm not sure which i remember walking to the church and i grew up in an unchurched family but um, i think my stepmother just thought maybe we should go to church and it was going to be her obligation and this was not the sweetest woman in the world i mean she's the one in the dictionary (laughs) under which would be and But in any case, she decided that we should have to go to church. We walked to this church, and I remember, you know, in first grade, I guess, saying, okay, what, what religion was Jesus? And she said, well, he was Jewish. It's like, well, that makes it easy. Then why aren't we Jewish? Well, underneath it, she was also a bigot. And so she knew she had done something wrong here. You know, if you think about, though, what was your experience and in your mind i i was in pittsburgh and jewish people lived in squirrel hill pittsburgh was real ethnic and we called each other names mm-hmm. and said go Steelers." so it wasn't the kind of bigotry i guess other people are used to it <laughs> you know or black and gold i guess was more our god there um, but you know yeah. what about you oh uh, i grew up i grew up in northern new jersey and the funny thing is is probably 60 percent of my friends were jewish uh, about of my friends were Catholic, and I was in the 10% Protestant minority growing up. I remember when my friend, uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, my friend, one of my good friends was named Howie Gold, right? Jewish. You know, no no question there, anything. And he, after school, would go to Hebrew school. And I remember going home and talking to my mom and going, Mom, why can't I go to Hebrew school? And she she just looked at me and she said, because we're Protestant. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that was all about. But, you know, I mean, you know, sure. I mean, Jesus was Jewish. Um, there's so much richness there that we we lose um, because because we want to decontextualize Jesus. And I know, you know, you're a doctor, a philosopher. You know what contextualization is all about. But if we decontextualize Jesus, we lose so much of what he had to teach us. And if we if we make Jesus in our image um, as Americans or as Westerners or um, whatever that image would be, we are, we're removing so much of the richness. You know, um, I remember wait, that. Wait, the, wait, the, wait, Carl, you're telling me you're telling me Jesus was not a white Republican. <laughs> are you really saying that? No, no. No, I yeah, don't think he was white. On. I don't think he was no, Republican. No. no, I think he looked a lot more like uh, one of my friends growing up too, Jonathan Ratkin, who had this, you know, amazing afro of curly dark hair, and and uh, I think he looked a lot more like that than the blonde Jesus of a lot of our childhood Bibles. But the reality is, when Jesus said, "I'm the light of the world," um, he was saying that at a festival where at the temple they illuminated the top tower of the temple with a bonfire that threw light over the entire old city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus was, you know, you read that as a Westerner, you have no idea that that was a, that was the night that they lit that bonfire. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. That's the richness of Jesus's Jewishness that I, that I always come back to and want people to understand that, that we are part of this amazing unfolding of God's plan all the way through from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Okay, Paul. I want to I want to get Paul in here. We sometimes <laughs> I don't drag him in enough, and it's another perspective. What are you hearing? Well, um, I'm hearing a lot, and and I and lots of questions come through my head. You know, I grew up in a totally different environment. I grew up uh, as an Irish Catholic. But not uh, all my relatives were, but in the neighborhood we lived in, we lived in uh, um, an affluent suburb of uh, of Detroit, and half of my school, I'll bet, was Jewish. And then I went to the University of Michigan, and I'll bet a third of the school was Jewish. I mean, they, they both had large Jewish populations. So I dated Jewish girls. I thought Jewish culture was just something I grew up with. And yet, I'd have to be the first to admit that um, my family probably... If you really stroked them too deep, uh, weren't too fond of uh, Jewish people. And in reverse, I, I know there were a couple of people I went out with, they weren't too thrilled that their daughter was dating somebody who wasn't Jewish. Well, I was thinking that. I mean, it's you, and on top of that, you weren't Jewish. Yeah, right. That's, you could be in trouble quickly on that one, can't you? In fact, it was kind of, and I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but I, uh, the way I look, uh, you can describe it any way you want, but I easily passed for being Jewish. I don't know why. Maybe... You know, I'm Irish Catholic. Jews are associated with having larger noses. Uh, certain Irish Catholics do you too. You have here. a Middle Eastern edge. From I had Irish a I had a little yeah. look to it. Uh, I didn't look like the. I didn't have red-haired Irish, you know, look to it. So, uh, people assumed in many cases that I was Jewish. Uh, a couple of girls I went out with were shocked when they found that I wasn't Jewish, um, uh, and and that sort of sometimes gave me sort of an insight because I was sort of accepted into like all these groups. They're sort of ethnic clans and tribes, and uh, they talk to you different if they think you're one of the tribe. I worked in the entertainment industry when I came out here, which is largely Jewish, uh, and uh, so that helped me. All of those experiences helped me. So I always felt like I sort of straddled two worlds, even though 
I have no claim to being Jewish. Here's my question to you guys. Here's my first thought that'll start us off here. Is Jew, Jews in the world have a unique perspective because they're not just a tribe, a culture, a very old tribe, an ethnic group. They also have a culture that's shaped so much of the world because of where they are and their religion. So do, when we talk about Jews, do we talk about Jews as a religion or it's just another ethnic group or a founding culture for Western society here? There's an easy one, Carl. Take off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it's easy. I mean, but, but you know, the way to look at it, there's probably three levels, like you said, of, of, uh, of being Jewish. I mean, you can, you can be Jewish and literally be an atheist. Yeah, um, and I knew and many that were. I, yeah, I, right. Exactly. And uh, then there's the cultural, uh, who, much the same way as my German or Norwegian roots, you know, bring me to certain foods or certain holidays or, or certain types of celebrations. Right. And then there's um, a whole range of spectrum when it comes to the religious um, part of being Jewish. Uh, everything from like like Catholics and Protestants, right. everything from extremely liberal sort of ethical religion um, Jewishness to full blown orthodoxy in terms of Jewish faith, you know, right. with certain different traditions even within those strains. So it is it is not a monolith, and I think that's what's so fascinating about this world. Um, when we talk about Israel and her neighbors. The Arab countries are the same. I mean, in countries like Egypt and Syria and Iraq, um, Lebanon, um, Jordan, you have you have tribes, you have sects, you have difference uh, between uh, not just between Christians and and Muslims in some of those countries, but within the Christian communities, even small Christian communities in some of these Middle Eastern countries have differences that keep them from even fellowshipping with each other, even even talking with each other. Yeah. And same with the Muslim sects as well. We all know about Shia and Sunni, but there are many, many others uh, that are uh, more idiosyncratic to the different areas of the I had a So it is the most complex area of the world, uh, both religiously, ethnically, uh, and, uh, and socially. I mean, it's just, it's complex. I'll throw one more uh, thing into it. I took a course, I was a political science major at the University of Michigan, and a history major, those are my fa- passions, and I had a wonderful man. course uh, that uh, on, this is the late 70s, and it was a course on Israel and Palestine and that ongoing conflict. And it was taught by a, a well-known professor in the field who was Jewish, and he had some harsh words to say about Israel, about both sides, really, um, and why this thing just will go on and on and on and on forever. And the one part of it I don't know if this is true or not, but that was what he passed on. And one of the things that struck me is he said, you know, in the we'll talk about Palestinians, in the nation of Islam, everybody's a brother. They don't seem to have, I don't know if this is true, but they don't seem to have a notion of, of statehood and separateness. You know, if we're, if we're Muslims, we're all Muslims together here. Even though Muslims are broken up into different uh, states and societies and whatnot, and tribes and whatnot. But they're all supposed to see each other as one group. And that's, on the one hand, why they reach out and support the Palestinians in their struggle against the, uh, and the Israelis, the Jews, who they think came back and took the land uh, after leaving it for centuries. And so he said, but on the other hand, they see the, the Arabs that live in Palestine, the people we call Palestinians, 
they're not a group that they particularly like, most Muslims. <laughs> and so we're drawn. We're, I'm supposed to support you because you're one of this, but you're kind of those poor Arabs, those Arabs we're not so crazy about here. And so on the one hand, we, we like you and we want to support you. On the other hand, we wish you'd go away. And that's why they haven't yeah. integrated well. The many people, some people say, why don't the Palestinians, okay, they, they can't have Israel, they don't want to live in Israel. Why don't they just go live in Jordan, in Iraq, and all these other places? Because they don't want them either. How does that? Yeah. Yeah, how does that affect what you're? Because we're talking, actually, actually, if I could, because I want I want you to address that. <laughs> but let me even tie it. Let me go the other direction and tie it together. From we're talking about all the differences, and right. you're talking about working in the right. differences. But let me let me tie. I think what ties us together. As, as a Protestant, our way of looking at the church oftentimes is we tend to think of the church as beginning with Martin Luther in fifteen seventeen, right? I mean, it, it that's seems what like we that. think. That's what we think yeah. things ended. Yes, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet, Both we, of you are wrong. It started way. Before. <laughs> okay, oh, right. so that's what I was going to say. So you have, I, you know, I like to remember that all those writings and all those leaders before. Uh, the 16th century were part of what I consider to be my church. And if we go back even further, isn't it the same sense of, as Christians, we tend to think that our, our faith began in AD 33 or something when Jesus died yeah. on a cross. Right. And wait, that's not when we believe God started to relate to the world. So you mean yeah. maybe then I'm kind of Jewish because my faith really includes all the stuff that I call Old Testament. They happen to call yeah. the Torah and so forth. Do I have something? Yeah. Am I on something here? Yeah, you you really are. I mean, because obviously, um, when Jesus taught, you know, let, let, you know, we could talk about AD 33 when he died and was resurrected, and that's the beginning of the church. That's the beginning of of you know the 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 entire saga of Christianity, if you will. But, you know, Jesus taught from the scriptures, and he said, you have read in the scriptures. And he was, his teaching was Old Testament teaching. You know, when people were, you know, accused of following this rabbi, he was a, he was a Jewish rabbi. And what's fascinating about this whole subject is, again, you know, Jewishness and the Old Testament was not foreign to Jesus. It may be foreign to a lot of us uh, in, the, in the New Testament uh, world of of Protestant Christianity and, and Catholic Christianity, um, it may be less uh, amenable to us. But Jesus embraced it all. He said, "You know, the, the entire Scripture, all Scripture. I fulfill all Scripture," and that's a pretty bold statement. Um, and I will tell you this: even today, I was listening to a um, a Brazilian um, by birth Jewish uh, convert who now ministers with us as one of our partners, um, ministry partners in Israel. And he was on a podcast we did a few weeks ago before I was executive director, but I was listening to it. And he said, as a young boy growing up in a Jewish community in Sao Paulo, Brazil, it wasn't like Messiah was foreign to him, but no one could tell him who the Messiah was or would be. And so the earnest desire of his heart as a Jewish boy was to know who this Messiah was. And that's the great news that the church, from the very beginning, from the very first teachings of Jesus, when Jesus said, you know, um, that he and the Father were one, the, the Jewish authorities of that day understood what he was claiming. 
He was claiming divinity. He was claiming the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament as we have it. And so that's that to me is the most fascinating thing about this, that at the center of the epicenter is the cross of Jesus Christ, because he ties all of the Old Testament history and all of the, 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 the loves and the passions and the desires of the Jewish people and the promises that they are still yet waiting to see fulfilled as the Jewish people. And he ties that to the entire history of the church, Catholic and Protestant. And so for me, the exciting part, and of course, after you know a few centuries of Christianity, Islam rose, and now Islam is the dominant religion in the neighbor countries. Okay, so, wait, wait, so wait, really, wait, let me let me let me stop for a second, okay? Okay, okay. I'm you, sorry, you, I'm teaching now. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. We lo- we love to go to fifty thousand feet. We do, but I'm stopping you because the, when you talked about who Jesus is as the Messiah, mm-hmm. the, the Jewish friends that I have are rolling their eyes and say, "I don't want to hear that." Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? So what right. why is it the Joshua fund and what are you actually doing? Because I think you don't have a very receptive audience. <laughs> well, you're you're right about that. And I've worked in a lot of difficult places, um, in you know, places like North Korea or China, Iran even. I mean, you'd think those are the worst places, you know, where the church is never gonna grow. But the hardest place, most missionaries will tell you to see receptivity to the to the gospel is in Israel. And it's because, again, of history and the way the church has treated Jewish people over the centuries, no doubt, and also the way in which the fundamental assumptions of many Jewish people who oppose Jesus as the Messiah, the message there, fundamental assumptions about what they understand to be Jewish. Now, I know many of my Messianic brothers and sisters and many of my other Jewish background believers uh, would would say, no, 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 it's a fulfillment of all that we are as Jewish people. But that's a that's another controversial comment in in many Jewish circles. I'm brand new to this entire organization. And yet what I've seen is that they lead with their hands full of the things that will bless anyone regardless of whatever faith they have. So what the Joshua Fund does is lead with material and um, social blessings like food for, um, you, you realize that over 30% of the Jewish population live in poverty. I know many Americans visit there and they see the, you know, the five-star hotels and they see the, the air-conditioned tour buses. But 30% of the population live in, in poverty that we would we wouldn't even register as poverty. It's below poverty for us. Yep. And many of them come from places of the world where they've, they've also been very poor, Eastern Europe, Russia, and Ethiopia. Um, an incredible amount of work we do among these poorest immigrants to Israel. And, of course, in the Palestinian areas, people are very poor as well. And so a lot of the work of the Joshua Fund is to distribute food aid when needed on a regular basis to some of these communities that just don't have the economics. It's been especially true since COVID-19, where people haven't even been able to work at the meager incomes that they were getting. So that's that we start with the love of Jesus. We start with blessing people. And before we get into controversial religious or social agendas, we just want people to know that God, capital G, loves them. And that in the name of Jesus, we want to bless them. 
Can I ask a controversial question? Maybe I maybe I'll open up a bomb and I'll set off an explosion here. But I really don't sure. Why not? understand. My church, the Catholic Church, has a horrible history with Jews. Too early on, they Jews were the ones who killed Christ, who killed the Messiah. And so either officially or unofficially, they were persecuted and driven to the point of during the Inquisition, you know, you're killed if you wouldn't convert from being a Jew. How that started, I don't know, but it, it took hold and the church didn't either encourage it or didn't do much to stop it. And I think that continued through much of Protestantism, too, until the modern era, my era, our era, when the evangelical movement suddenly sprang up and said, we're going to love Israel. We're going to embrace the Jews. And I always wonder, is it just because they've gone back to the Bible and say, well, if God loved them, we got to love them? Or are they out to convert them and correct the, the fact they, they missed the Messiah when he came along? There we go. That, that is a bomb. <laughs> is that a bomb? <laughs> uh, yeah, because, you know, the problem today is we we don't understand. I'm, I'm going to say my opinion here, so please understand my opinion is my opinion. I think, the, I think the parts of the church, particularly the evangelical church, that teach we don't need to evangelize the Jewish people, present the good news to them, are missing a, a fundamental point in that God didn't, God didn't allow, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his love is all-encompassing for all peoples. But it is not a matter of God has a plan A for the Jewish people, and we're plan B, and oh, by the way, we, we're just going to let their, their plan go. I, I know that there are teachers in the Protestant church in, in America who teach that, who say, you know, evangelism is for every person on earth except Jewish people, right. because God's got a different plan for them. I don't believe that's the case, but the way we do it, I mean, look, I mean, the Crusades, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, conquistador uh Programs and things like that that said convert at the sword or die. Um, I mean that that is not the message of Jesus, and I don't think it's just because we're moderns and we see that that's that's a horrific way to go. I think I think the people who presented that didn't have the agenda of seeing Jews actually come to know Jesus, come to know their Messiah. Um, they had a different agenda, political or conquest or something else. So, hey, um, this is just I mean, we get me can, out of this. <laughs> I know I opened a can of worms, but it's no, but you know, Paul, that's what's good about you know having you, um, not being a theologian because we can really get off. And but the message you're saying is so clear, Carl, and and I do have to wrap it up, but you know, um, I would I would summarize as a guy that I remember years ago used to say, before you dare take the gospel of Christ to a Jew. You gotta say I'm sorry. You just have to. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that's applicable for today. Yeah, and better than I'm for sorry. Our, how about I love you like you're doing and saying yeah. you need food? Let me give you some food. I think such good stuff. And I just you know encourage you. One, we're friends, and and you know I know your ministry. I know your credibility. But you know what? It's not going to be easy. And you wrote a book that I just want to you know, call a little bit of attention to, you're not out there hawking a book. I know that. But just tell me the name of the book and people want to hear because you expect to be persecuted. Sure. So maybe that's why you take yeah. this kind of job. What's the book called? <laughs> it's called The Privilege of Persecution. 
and other things the global church knows that we don't. Um, uh, and uh, people ask me all the time, what do you mean the privilege of persecution? I mean, who, who counts that a privilege? The irony is Paul did in Philippians 1.27 uh, when he said to the Philippians, he said, for you, it's been granted the privilege, not only of believing in Jesus, but of suffering for his name. And I've just encountered Christians all over the world who, who literally, when we talk this, the name of this podcast is Church Church Hurts, and, and, and for me, and, and sometimes Church Heals. Um, you know, the, the, the believers, the, the brothers and sisters that I have met, in places where they've been persecuted relentlessly for decades in many cases, and in personal ways, um, losing jobs, losing families, losing freedoms, uh, sometimes even losing their life, they still would say to me, Carl, we pray for you in America because persecution is a privilege and affluence is a curse. Um, and it, it, it takes us away from the truth of our faith. It takes, you know, when you're, when you're rich, you don't have to depend on God. We're poor. We have to depend on him. When you're powerful, you don't have to rely on God to, to do things, um, for you. You don't, you don't seek God. You seek your power. Uh, that, that to me is the, the essence of the book. You know, the, the stories and the lessons I learned from persecuted Christians about generosity, you know, pastors who had absolutely nothing. And who made a lunch for me and my 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 translator and my family in one in one poor Mexican town, and and I I leaned over to the translator. I said, "How much do you think this lunch cost him?" And he said, "I don't know, two hundred pesos, maybe maybe twenty U.S. dollars." And I realized that he made in a month thirty U.S. dollars. So imagine the generosity of somebody who feeds me at his table for two-thirds of his monthly take-home pay. That's what I mean by learning lessons from the the, the, the global church, and that's really what, what the book is all about. So I could go on. There's, there's six or seven uh, major lessons that we can learn from them. You know, we always think that we're the ones who know everything because we're Americans. Uh, we can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters. Can you give us a of story of how you've been received when you go over to Israel with this work, with this help? Did they say thanks, but we're not going to change? Did they say thanks, and we're open to he hearing what you have yet, to say? Paul. He's that new. Oh, oh yes, no, he's been, been, been Israel, but not on behalf I've of the been. Joshua Fund. Yeah. Right, but but I've worked alongside uh, the Joshua Fund in another organization, and um, you know the, the the essential nature of it is this: you know that we don't we don't say that we're pro-Israel or we're pro-Palestinian or we're pro-Arab. We just say we're pro-Jesus. And, um, you know, people of good faith on the Jewish side will listen to you. And especially, as John said and reiterated, you know, when we come with, with full hands, when we come to give to them first and to bless them in the name of Jesus, it's a way different thing than coming to them with an agenda of what we want them to, to agree to or to come to. Uh, we, live, we leave that up to the Holy Spirit. God works. God moves. And just like that, that Brazilian Jewish boy who's now a minister, uh, uh, you know, doing a sports ministry in Jerusalem, you know, he, if he has a hunger to know the Messiah, God will, will show himself to him. What a great way to wrap up. Um, Carl, thank you. You know, we're going to do this again. But if there's one so. thing, uh, yeah, for sure. But if there's one thing that I'm reminded of um, from this discussion, 
um, is that really doing God's work isn't as neat and clean as we wish it is or was. Sometimes it's filled with controversy and it carries a great price. Um, sometimes it puts us in situations we'd rather avoid. Yesterday, my son uh, asked me to watch his puppy, Ava, for the day. And it wasn't convenient, um, but I like to help my kids like any uh, decent parent whenever I can. So I suffered as the saint that I am with this six-month-old golden doodle. Now, if you want to see cuteness on four legs, this is it. And we walked with a friend of mine for miles, and we played catch, and we practiced walking without a leash. I mean, it was marvelous. But today, as I was preparing for this show and walking to the place uh, where I sit, I found that beneath my chair, this sweet little puppy had left me a nice present piled up very (laughs) properly. Now, I could call up my son and tell him what a bad dog he got and that he didn't have her house trained yet, but I didn't because I'm so deeply spiritual. But she did remind me that we have choices. I can choose to remember that present that she left me that goes in a doggy bag, or I can remember her loving kisses, her joyful jumps, her desire to please me when given a command. It's my choice. We have a choice, too, when it comes to the tough stuff today. Whether it's the protests, the politics, the virus, we can turn our heads and we can look beneath the mess and see that there may be an opportunity, and it may be a big one. Maybe it's an opportunity to say you're sorry. Maybe it's just a chance you have to listen without judgment or to jump behind a mission which really touches your heart. You know, when Jesus was walking in the Holy Land and just about had finished his ministry, he told his disciples something really, really powerfully at the end. So he was coming to the end, like, what does he really want them to remember? You have had the privilege of walking with the Son of God. Remember how privileged you are. He didn't say that. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Consider loving someone today, and it's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash, love somebody and enjoy God today, won't you? Well, that brings us to the close of another edition of Church Hurts and leaving us, as always, with a lot to think about. If you want to continue the conversation with our host, Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving their ministry too soon. Find out more about Church Hurts and... Just visit the website, churchhurtsand.org. And next week, yes, there's always a next week, we have a very special guest ready to tackle well, the easy subject compared to today's topic, churches and the Middle East. Church Hurts.